How y'all doing that? Sure would like to thank y'all for stopping by to have a cigar with Uncle Maduro. Man, look at him. Now, before we get started, y'all always know, like, tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on the Luciano Ultra. Now, before I tell y'all what I think about this here stick, I'm going to tell y'all what these folks say about it. All right? They say, to say a Luciano has an impressive profile would be an egregious understatement. It turns out top-rated cigar after top-rated cigar. And to be honest, it can be overwhelming deciding which of the D.O. Giolatti's tasty creations I should enjoy next. If I'm, not, if I'm in the mood for something full-body with a ridiculous amount of flavor, I tend to reach for Ultra. The fillers are a bold blend of all Nicaraguan tobacco consisting of Corojo, Corolo, and Legrano. From the two regions with a Colorado Rosado wrapper on the surface. Their cigars have some serious chew, a far amount of spice, and notes of earth and coffee. If you're looking for a cigar with that flavor that can't be tamed, you hit the jackpot with this ultra. Man, look at here. And let me tell y'all something now. I told y'all a couple podcasts back about a Luciano. I watched the video of the guy who blends these six cigars here. He's a master blender. And he's always also a historian, a historian also. A lot of his cigars are named after, you know, some event or something that happened back in history. But these are some really good cigars. A cigar buddy today gave me this here stick. We uh, had to get together, you know, at one, one of the cigar gents' house. You know, we was playing shuffleboard. You know, we didn't get to play cornhole, and we didn't get to play bocce ball this go-round because we spent so much time playing shuffleboard. And let me tell you something. Me and my buddy, you know, when I got there, we kind of started out kind of cold. You know, we kind of started out kind of cold. You know, we probably lost about two, three games to start. Okay? But let me tell you something. We came on at the end. After after we kind of got situated and got a game plan together, man, let me tell you, we came on strong at the end. But see, that just goes to show you, it ain't about how you start. It's about how you finish. You know, like old man told me one time, a dog start fast, he don't last. <laughs> but we had a good day today. And I was smoking on this Illusion, and I came here home. I didn't finish it at my cigar buddy house. I kind of, you know, brought half of it home here. And so I think I said, you know what? I'm going to get into a little, little pie talk here. And you know what? This Illusion Ultra, man, I need to say something good about this stick. So let me tell y'all something. Go to your local cigar spot and see if they got this Illusion Ultra. Y'all needs to fry Y'all need to Try this here stick. It's a really, really good stick. If you can't find your local cigar spot, like I always tell y'all, go online. Go online to see how host or somewhere like that and get them online. But first, always shop local. Y'all always know as I tell y'all that. Now look here. Tonight, this little talk here is going to be very interesting. Now I know usually at the end of my little talks I do a little rant, but I'm not going to go on no big rant on this little pod talk here. Because this little pod talk here it has something to do with this election and past election and past election. It kind of going to give y'all an idea of what's going on with not just elections, but how people use your data, how people use your information. See, I got off Facebook a couple years ago, you know, after when I started studying this stuff. I don't mess with Facebook. I don't mess with Facebook at all. I don't mess with Instagrams. I don't mess with none of that stuff no more. They got enough of my pictures and information on that. I'm not getting them nothing new. 
Nothing new at all. And you got to watch some devices in your house too. But I'm not going to give it all away right now. This little talk here that I'm going to do here, it's on data mining. Data mining. Your information. That's what this thing here is about. How people is collecting your, your data. They're collecting your information. Now, some folks out here say, hey, man, it don't matter about that to me because I ain't got nothing to hide. Well, let me tell you something. The first thing come is collecting your data. The second thing come is control. It's okay. First, collect your data and then control. So right now, you're thinking people got your information is really no big deal. You see what I'm saying? But see, they're going to use all this information later. It's going to be a control thing. But I'm not going to dip and dab right now and give everything away. Right now, I'm going to step back out the way here, and I'm going to let y'all take a listen to this little talk. Now, it's going to be a two-part talk. Like I said, I'm not going to go on no big rant at, you know, at the end. So when it end, it end, because I want y'all to go back and listen to this thing. Because we're going to do a couple of series on, series on data and information and how some of these companies are using your information. See, you don't get nothing for free in life. My dad told me that. He said, boy, you don't get nothing for free. <laughs> you know what I mean? You don't get nothing for free. Whenever somebody said they're going to give you something for free, you know, there's going to be a price to pay at some point for it. Especially if you go to jail. If you go to jail, they tell me, if you go to jail and somebody offer you a cookie, don't, don't you take that cookie. They offer you a candy bar, don't you take that candy bar. Because that's like fishing. You know, like, and what I mean by fishing, like fishing emails. That's like them emails they send y'all, you know, that clickbait. You click on them emails, all of a sudden you get a virus or you get something like that. They call phishing emails. Y'all go back and listen to the pod talk I did on phishing emails. We're gonna, and we're going to rekindle that too. But right now, like I said, I'm not going to get off into it. I want y'all to take a listen to this thing here. First part, we're going to take a look at, going to explain to you guys what data mining is. Then we're going to take a look at Facebook, how Facebook uses your, your information. Then we're going to take a look at Amazon, how Amazon uses your information. Because you like that two-day shipping. You like that one click, right? Well, you're going to learn a little bit about that. And then we're going to come back at the end, and I'm going to show y'all how Donald Trump election use Facebook. You see what I'm saying? And I'm not going to give all that away. I'm giving too much away right now. But right now what I'm going to do is I'm going to kick back here with my Illusion Ultra. I'm going to puff on this while y'all listen to that. And then I'm going to come back probably in the middle, say a little something, and then we're going to go on out. We will go on out with, all right? So don't expect no big talk from me at the end because I don't want to confuse y'all because I want y'all to get this. Because, you know, y'all need to open y'all eyes what's going on. Now, one thing I got to say, I'm not here to, I'm not here to tell y'all that technology is bad and stop using technology, but there's a smart way to use everything, all right? But first thing you got to do is you got to gather the information. So I'm just going to give y'all a little my little view here. Now, let me tell you something here, right? I don't know everything. I don't know everything, but I'm curious about everything. So I take everything I'm curious about one thing at a time, all right? So y'all listen to this while I spoke on my Illusion Ultra, and I'm going to catch up with y'all on the flip side, okay? All right, now, take a listen to this. What is the purpose of data mining? Data mining is a process used by companies to turn raw data into useful information. By using software to look for patterns in large batches of data, businesses can learn more about their customers to develop more effective marketing strategies, increase sales, and decrease costs. Data mining. Data mining is a process of discovering patterns in large data sets involving methods at the intersection of machine learning, statistics, and database systems. Data mining is an interdisciplinary subfield of computer science and statistics with an overall goal to extract information, with intelligent methods, from a data set and transform the information into a comprehensible structure for further use.
Data mining is the analysis step of the knowledge discovery in databases process, or KDD. Aside from the raw analysis step, it also involves database and data management aspects, data pre-processing, model and inference considerations, interestingness metrics, complexity considerations, post-processing of discovered structures, visualization, and online updating. The term data mining is a misnomer, because the goal is the extraction of patterns and knowledge from large amounts of data, not the extraction, mining, of data itself. It also is a buzzword and is frequently applied to any form of large-scale data or information processing, collection, extraction, warehousing, analysis, and statistics, as well as any application of computer decision support system, including artificial intelligence, example machine learning, and business intelligence. The book Data Mining, Practical Machine Learning Tools and Techniques with Java, which covers mostly machine learning material, was originally to be named just Practical Machine Learning, and the term data mining was only added for marketing reasons. Often the more general terms, large-scale, data analysis and analytics or, when referring to actual methods, artificial intelligence and machine learning are more appropriate. The actual data mining task is the semi-automatic or automatic analysis of large quantities of data to extract previously unknown, interesting patterns such as groups of data records, cluster analysis, unusual records, anomaly detection, and dependencies, association rule mining, sequential pattern mining. This usually involves using database techniques such as spatial indices. These patterns can then be seen as a kind of summary of the input data, and may be used in further analysis or, for example, in machine learning and predictive analytics. For example, the data mining step might identify multiple groups in the data, which can then be used to obtain more accurate prediction results by a decision support system. Neither the data collection, data preparation, nor result interpretation and reporting is part of the data mining step, but do belong to the overall KDD process as additional steps. The difference between data analysis and data mining is that data analysis is used to test models and hypotheses on the data set, example analyzing the effectiveness of a marketing campaign, regardless of the amount of data, in contrast, data mining uses machine learning and statistical models to uncover clandestine or hidden patterns in a large volume of data. The related terms data dredging, data phishing, and data snooping refer to the use of data mining methods to sample parts of a larger population data set that are, or may be, too small for reliable statistical inferences to be made about the validity of any patterns discovered. These methods can, however, be used in creating new hypotheses to test against the larger data populations. Etymology In the 1960s, statisticians and economists used terms like data phishing or data dredging to refer to what they considered the bad practice of analyzing data without an a priori hypothesis. The term data mining was used in a similarly critical way by economist Michael Lovell in an article published in the Review of Economic Studies in 1983. Lovell indicates that the practice masquerades under a variety of aliases, ranging from experimentation, positive, to phishing or snooping, negative. The term data mining appeared around 1990 in the database community, generally with positive connotations. For a short time in 1980s, a phrase database mining trademark was used but since it was trademarked by HNC, a San Diego-based company, to pitch their database mining workstation, researchers consequently turned to data mining. Other terms used include data archaeology, information harvesting, information discovery, knowledge extraction, etc. Gregory Pietetsky Shapiro coined the term knowledge discovery in databases for the first workshop on the same topic, KDD 1989, and this term became more popular in AI and machine learning community. However, the term data mining became more popular in the business and press communities. Currently, 
the terms data mining and knowledge discovery are used interchangeably. In the academic community, the major forums for research started in 1995 when the first International Conference on Data Mining and Knowledge Discovery, KDD95, was started in Montreal under AAAI sponsorship. It was co-chaired by Usama Fayyad and Ramasamy Uthurasamy. A year later, in 1996, Usama Fayyad launched the journal by Kluwer called Data Mining and Knowledge Discovery as its founding editor-in-chief. Later he started the SIH newsletter SIH Explorations. The KDD International Conference became the primary highest quality conference in data mining with an acceptance rate of research paper submissions below 18%. The journal Data Mining and Knowledge Discovery is the primary research journal of the field. The manual extraction of patterns from data has occurred for centuries. Early methods of identifying patterns in data include Bayes' theorem, 1700s, and regression analysis, 1800s. The proliferation, ubiquity, and increasing power of computer technology have dramatically increased data collection, storage, and manipulation ability. As data sets have grown in size and complexity, direct hands-on data analysis has increasingly been augmented with indirect, automated data processing, aided by other discoveries in computer science, especially in the field of machine learning, such as neural networks, cluster analysis, genetic algorithms, 1950s decision trees and decision rules, 1960s, and support vector machines, 1990s. Data mining is the process of applying these methods with the intention of uncovering hidden pattern 16 in large data sets. It bridges the gap from applied statistics and artificial intelligence, which usually provide the mathematical background, to database management by exploiting the way data is stored and indexed in databases to execute the actual learning and discovery algorithms more efficiently, allowing such methods to be applied to ever larger data sets. Process the knowledge discovery in databases, KDD, process is commonly defined with the stages. 1. Selection. 2. Pre-processing. 3. Transformation. 4. Data mining. 5. Interpretation slash evaluation. It exists, however, in many variations on this theme, such as the cross-industry standard process for data mining, CRISP-DM, which defines six phases. 1. Business understanding. 2. Data understanding. 3. Data preparation. 4. Modeling. 5. Evaluation. 6. Deployment. Or a simplified process such as pre-processing, data mining, and results validation. Business understanding. Polls conducted in 2002, 2004, 2007 and 2014 show that the CRISP-DM methodology is the leading methodology used by data miners. The only other data mining standard named in these polls was SEMA. However, three to four times as many people reported using CRISP-DM. Several teams of researchers have published reviews of data mining process models and Azevedo and Santos conducted a comparison of CRISP-DM and SEMA in 2008. Before data mining algorithms can be used, a target data set must be assembled. As data mining can only uncover patterns actually present in the data, the target data set must be large enough to contain these patterns while remaining concise enough to be mined within an acceptable time limit. A common source for data is a data mart or data warehouse. Pre-processing is essential to analyze the multivariate data sets before data mining. The target set is then cleaned. Data cleaning removes the observations containing noise and those with missing data. Pre-processing. Before data mining algorithms can be used, a target data set must be assembled. As data mining can only uncover patterns actually present in the data, the target data set must be large enough to contain these patterns while remaining concise enough to be mined within an acceptable time limit. A common source for data is a data mart or data warehouse. 
Pre-processing is essential to analyze the multivariate data sets before data mining. The target set is then cleaned. Data cleaning removes the observations containing noise and those with missing data. Data mining. Data mining involves six common classes of tasks. 1. Anomaly detection, outlier slash change slash deviation detection, the identification of unusual data records, that might be interesting or data errors that require further investigation. 2. Association rule learning, dependency modeling, searches for relationships between variables. For example, a supermarket might gather data on customer purchasing habits. Using association rule learning, the supermarket can determine which products are frequently bought together and use this information for marketing purposes. This is sometimes referred to as market basket analysis. 3. Clustering, is the task of discovering groups and structures in the data that are in some way or another similar, without using known structures in the data. 4. Classification, is the task of generalizing known structure to apply to new data. For example, an email program might attempt to classify an email as legitimate or as spam. 5. Regression, attempts to find a function that models the data with the least error that is, for estimating the relationships among data or data sets. 6. Summarization, providing a more compact representation of the data set, including visualization and report generation. Results Validation An example of data produced by data dredging through a bot operated by statistician Tyler Vigen, apparently showing a close link between the best word winning a spelling bee competition and the number of people in the United States killed by venomous spiders. The similarity in trends is obviously a coincidence. Data mining can unintentionally be misused, and can then produce results that appear to be significant, but which do not actually predict future behavior and cannot be reproduced on a new sample of data and bear little use. Hey there, Kenfo. This is Uncle Maduro. Look, if y'all been enjoying these little pie talks here I'll be giving, then won't y'all consider buying old Uncle Maduro a cigar? You can go right there to my little wave page there and donate. Donate to Uncle Maduro just for the price of one cigar. And man, let me tell you, I keep on doing these little talks here that I be giving. So now that I've done harassing y'all like a seagull at the beach, let's get back to the talk. All right now. Often this results from investigating too many hypotheses and not performing proper statistical hypothesis testing. A simple version of this problem in machine learning is known as overfitting, but the same problem can arise at different phases of the process and thus a train-slash-test split when applicable at all may not be sufficient to prevent this from happening. The final step of knowledge discovery from data is to verify that the patterns produced by the data mining algorithms occur in the wider data set. Not all patterns found by data mining algorithms are necessarily valid. It is common for data mining algorithms to find patterns in the training set which are not present in the general data set. This is called overfitting. To overcome this, the evaluation uses a test set of data on which the data mining algorithm was not trained. The learned patterns are applied to this test set, and the resulting output is compared to the desired output. For example, a data mining algorithm trying to distinguish spam from legitimate emails would be trained on a training set of sample emails. Once trained, the learned patterns would be applied to the test set of emails on which it had not been trained. The accuracy of the patterns can then be measured from how many emails they correctly classify. Several statistical methods may be used to evaluate the algorithm, such as rock curves. If the learned patterns do not meet the desired standards, subsequently it is necessary to re-evaluate and change the pre-processing and data mining steps. If the learned patterns do meet the desired standards, then the final step is to interpret the learned patterns and turn them into knowledge. Research The premier professional body in the field is the Association for Computing Machineries, ACM, Special Interest Group, SIG 
on knowledge discovery and data mining, SIG. Since 1989, this ACM SIG has hosted an annual international conference and published its proceedings, and since 1999 it has published a biannual academic journal titled SIG Explorations. Computer science conferences on data mining include 1.CIKM Conference, ACM Conference on Information and Knowledge Management. 2.European Conference on Machine Learning and Principles and Practice of Knowledge Discovery in Databases. 3.KDD Conference, ACM Conference on Knowledge Discovery and Data Mining. 4.Data Mining Topics are also present on many data management slash database conferences such as the ICDE Conference, SIGMOT Conference, and International Conference on Very Large Databases. Standards There have been some efforts to define standards for the data mining process, for example, the 1999 European Cross-Industry Standard Process for Data Mining, CRISP-DM 1.0, and the 2004 Java Data Mining Standard, JDM 1.0. Development on successors to these processes, CRISP-DM 2.0 and JDM 2.0, was active in 2006 but has stalled since. JDM 2.0 was withdrawn without reaching a final draft. For exchanging the extracted models in particular for use in predictive analytics the key standard is the predictive model markup language, PMML, which is an XML-based language developed by the Data Mining Group, DMG, and supported as exchange format by many data mining applications. As the name suggests, it only covers prediction models, a particular data mining task of high importance to business applications. However, extensions to cover, for example, Subspace clustering have been proposed independently of the DMG. Notable uses. Data mining is used wherever there is digital data available today. Notable examples of data mining can be found throughout business, medicine, science, and surveillance. Privacy concerns and ethics. While the term data mining itself may have no ethical implications, it is often associated with the mining of information in relation to people's behavior, ethical and otherwise. The ways in which data mining can be used can in some cases and contexts raise questions regarding privacy, legality, and ethics. In particular, data mining government or commercial data sets for national security or law enforcement purposes, such as in the Total Information Awareness Program or in Advise, has raised privacy concerns. Data mining requires data preparation which uncovers information or patterns which compromise confidentiality and privacy obligations. A common way for this to occur is through data aggregation. Data aggregation involves combining data together, possibly from various sources, in a way that facilitates analysis, but that also might make identification of private, individual-level data deducible or otherwise apparent. This is not data mining per se, but a result of the preparation of data before and for the purposes of the analysis. The threat to an individual's privacy comes into play when the data, once compiled, cause the data miner, or anyone who has access to the newly compiled data set, to be able to identify specific individuals, especially when the data were originally anonymous. Data may also be modified so as to become anonymous, so that individuals may not readily be identified. However, even anonymized data sets can potentially contain enough information to allow identification of individuals, as occurred when journalists were able to find several individuals based on a set of search histories that were inadvertently released by AOL. The inadvertent revelation of personally identifiable information leading to the provider violates fair information practices. This indiscretion can cause financial, emotional, or bodily harm to the indicated individual. In one instance of privacy violation, the patrons of Walgreens filed a lawsuit against the company in 2011 for selling prescription information to data mining companies who in turn provided the data to pharmaceutical companies. Situation in Europe Europe has rather strong privacy laws, 
and efforts are underway to further strengthen the rights of the consumers. However, the U.S. E.U. Safe Harbor Principles, developed between 1998 and 2000, currently effectively expose European users to privacy exploitation by U.S. companies. As a consequence of Edward Snowden's global surveillance disclosure, there has been increased discussion to revoke this agreement, as in particular the data will be fully exposed to the National Security Agency, and attempts to reach an agreement with the United States have failed. In the United Kingdom in particular there have been cases of corporations using data mining as a way to target certain groups of customers forcing them to pay unfairly high prices. These groups tend to be people of lower socio-economic status who are not savvy to the ways they can be exploited in digital marketplaces. Situation in the United States In the United States, privacy concerns have been addressed by the U.S. Congress via the passage of regulatory controls such as the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, HIPAA. The HIPAA requires individuals to give their informed consent regarding information they provide and its intended present and future uses. According to an article in Biotech Business Week, IN Practice, HIPAA may not offer any greater protection than the long-standing regulations in the research arena, says the AAHC. More importantly, the rule's goal of protection through informed consent is approach a level of incomprehensibility to average individuals. This underscores the necessity for data anonymity in data aggregation and mining practices. U.S. information privacy legislation such as HIPAA and the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, applies only to the specific areas that each such law addresses. The use of data mining by the majority of businesses in the U.S. is not controlled by any legislation. Situation in Europe Under European copyright and database laws, the mining of in-copyright works, such as by web mining, without the permission of the copyright owner is not legal. Where a database is pure data in Europe, it may be that there is no copyright but database rights may exist so data mining becomes subject to intellectual property owners' rights that are protected by the database directive. On the recommendation of the Hargreaves Review, this led to the UK government to amend its copyright law in 2014 to allow content mining as a limitation and exception. The UK was the second country in the world to do so after Japan, which introduced an exception in 2009 for data mining. However, due to the restriction of the Information Society Directive, 2001, the UK exception only allows content mining for non-commercial purposes. UK copyright law also does not allow this provision to be overridden by contractual terms and conditions. The European Commission facilitated stakeholder discussion on text and data mining in 2013, under the title of Licenses for Europe. The focus on the solution to this legal issue, such as licensing rather than limitations and exceptions, led to representatives of universities, researchers, libraries, civil society groups and open access publishers to leave the stakeholder dialogue in May 2013. Situation in the United States U.S. copyright law, and in particular its provision for fair use, upholds the legality of content mining in America, and other fair use countries such as Israel, Taiwan, and South Korea. As content mining is transformative, that is it does not supplant the original work, it is viewed as being lawful under fair use. For example, as part of the Google Book settlement the presiding judge on the case ruled that Google's digitization project of in-copyright books was lawful, in part because of the transformative uses that the digitization project displayed one being text and data mining. You all love Facebook and Instagram, and they both knows you, exceptionally well. Let's see how Facebook data mines. Facebook tracks who we talk to, what we talk about, what we like, what we're interested in. It tracks where we are and what transactions we conduct. Facebook can pick your face out of other people's pictures and automatically tag you in media. It can even find you in the background of crowd shots, 
isn't it cool that I've been tagged in so many pictures? After gathering all this personal data, who does Facebook sell it to? Any buyer who can afford it? Even foreign actors, as we saw in the 2016 election. If there's a small smidgen of our intimate life that Facebook can sell, it will do so. Yet here's the irony, Facebook recently posted continued growth and profit numbers for the last year. It reported that over 2 billion people use its online properties every day. So it appears that users don't care that their personal data is sold freely, or more accurately, don't fully understand the ramifications. Think about it, Facebook is enabling the subversion of our highly personal social networks for profit and undue political influence. Which raises the questions, is consumer capitalism, with any sense of safeguards, working anymore? Are the likes of Facebook, Google, and other online giants simply too big to suffer economic penalties for violating public trust? If so, we are on a slippery slope indeed. Even if we accept that by sharing personal data we'll receive more targeted advertising, we face a huge challenge. Namely, Facebook's reach and potential misuse of personal data is now creating a real threat to our fundamental ideas of individual freedom and liberty. Harvesting all of us. It's not that we haven't been warned about the dangers of sharing personal data online. And many of us do take precautions with some of our sensitive data. Yet as a group we think all those online complementary services are worth the loss of privacy, bit by bit. So Facebook, and other web giants, accumulate all our personal data points over time. The more data there is in one place, the more value it has for data mining. Over time, and in context of other individual data points, it becomes big data. Using data integration, it's then mixed on the back end with other data sources that, as end users, will never be aware. Increasingly, identifiable data collection is happening in more dimensions than are ever understood by most users. Some apps now offer general surveys or take note about group preferences, but are really harvesting detailed notes that track us individually. These apps, we know, use data analytics to analyze friends of friends' comments to compile data about us. They even determine our current emotional state from textual analysis or online behavior. It's now possible to correlate how sad or depressed someone might be by analyzing the volume and variety of their online interactions. Are we comfortable with all of this? A cautionary culture. Let's look at China today. The government is building a huge system to track every individual social reputation. Why shouldn't good people be recognized and rewarded? Yet it's not just a reward. Authorities can use that reputation as a means of direct influence and control, who gets jobs, travel, and educational opportunities. The Chinese government can aggregate and mine phone and app online activity, reported recorded personal interactions, and all financial transactions. In China, every individual will be monitored at a micro level. Everything people do will be auditable forever. Now, back to Facebook, recently there was an online fun app in which users were encouraged to submit two pictures of themselves, 10 years apart. Privacy experts suspect that this was a thinly disguised excuse to collect a massive amount of training data, to train algorithms at a huge scale. Of course, all of this makes that vast Facebook photo library even more commercially valuable. If you submitted your precious selfies, you helped a machine learn how to erode one more layer of your privacy. When we compare China with our freedom-oriented Western culture, are we really aiming to get somewhere much different? I fear that platforms like Facebook have taken us many steps down that darker road. The machine is learning. Much of the data mining we're talking about is about training recognition algorithms. I'm a big fan of the mathematics of machine learning, but I'm not so sure it can be ethically deployed at scale for good. Much has been written about the way machine learning algorithms at scale can be taught prejudices and learn bad behaviors, 
or used as a pretense and shield for ultimately unethical practices. Beyond that, we should be aware that machine learning is also forming the basis of much of today's drive towards process automation. Increasingly, intelligent machine-based automation, powered by deep learning and artificial intelligence, will replace many of the jobs of many low-skilled people. I don't believe in protecting jobs that could otherwise be intelligently automated. But those users who aren't careful about donating their data might find it used to automate them out of relevancy. There could come a time when companies that own the resulting intelligence will own everything there is of value. Fundamental trust issues. There is an implied social contract between people that assumes a basic level of goodness in all people. But too many forget that Facebook is a for-profit company, not a trusted confidant or even a neutral platform. Even if we believe that online privacy is already a lost cause, we'd be wise to remember one thing, not everything we do needs to be exposed and handed outright to commercial entities. Trust should be a hard thing to earn, and for trust in third parties, constantly revalidated. We need to keep in mind that passive data sharing is a deliberate trust decision. I'm not suggesting we turn off the internet, or give up on tech-based networking with our friends and family. But as we said back in my Air Force days, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. In closing, let's see how Amazon uses data mining. Amazon.com, Incorporated, AMZN, is a leader in collecting, storing, processing, and analyzing personal information from you and every other customer as a means of determining how customers are spending their money. The company uses predictive analytics for targeted marketing to increase customer satisfaction and build company loyalty. On the other hand, some customers may find that how much the retailer knows about them simply by the products they purchase makes them more than a little uncomfortable. What does Amazon know, and how does it know it? 1. Alexa Voice Recordings Thanks to virtual assistants such as the Echo and Echo Show, which includes a camera as well as a speaker, getting the weather forecast or ordering more shampoo are a simple voice command away. What customers may not realize, however, is that their audio recordings may be uploaded to Amazon servers. The company suggests that these voice files help make the Alexa experience better, enabling more accurate speech recognition by learning to process messages from a diverse group of customers. Point one. However, for some users the knowledge that their voice is being stored isn't exactly reassuring. Those privacy concerns are only growing, thanks to Amazon's introduction of wearable devices such as Echo Frames, its Alexa-powered eyeglasses, and Echo Loop, a smart ring that you wear on your finger. If you're not comfortable with voice recordings from your account being stored in the cloud, you can delete them one by one or by data range, using your Alexa-enabled assistant. Conversely, you can visit settings Alexa privacy in the Alexa app to manage existing files. The downside, eliminating those files could inhibit some of Alexa's functionality. 2. Ring Video Footage Amazon became a major player in the growing home security market when it purchased Ring in 2018.4. However, the company raised eyebrows among privacy advocates by partnering with hundreds of law enforcement agencies across the country, often supplying surveillance footage from customers without their consent. Point five. Many police departments have also developed voluntary camera registries where homeowners can submit footage on their own. Ring has tried to assuage those fears by adding new privacy features, such as the home mode setting that lets you turn off the audio and visual feeds from cameras on your premises and create privacy zones in your home where cameras cannot record. 3. Personalized Recommendation System Amazon is a leader in using a comprehensive, collaborative filtering engine, CFE. It analyzes the items you purchased previously, what is in your online shopping cart or on your wish list, which products you reviewed and rated, and what items you search for most. This information is used to recommend additional products that other customers purchased when buying those same items. For example, 
When you add a DVD to your online shopping cart, similar movies purchased by other customers are also recommended for you to purchase. In this way Amazon's big data uses the power of suggestion to encourage you to buy on impulse as a means of further satisfying your shopping experience and spending more money. This method generates 35% of the company's sales annually. 4 Book Recommendations from Kindle Highlighting After acquiring Goodreads in 2013, Amazon integrated the social networking service of approximately 25 million users into some Kindle functions. As a result, Kindle readers can highlight words and notes and share them with others as a means of discussing a book. Amazon regularly reviews words highlighted in your Kindle to determine what you are interested in learning about. The company may then send you additional ebook recommendations. 5. One-click ordering. Because big data shows that you shop elsewhere unless your products are delivered quickly, Amazon created one-click ordering. One-click is a patented feature automatically enabled when you place your first order and enter a shipping address and payment method. When choosing one-click ordering, you have 30 minutes in which you may change your mind about the purchase. After that, the product is automatically charged via your payment method and shipped to your address. 6. Anticipatory Shipping Model Amazon's patented anticipatory shipping model also uses big data for predicting the products you are likely to purchase, when you may buy them, and where you might need the products. The items are sent to a local distribution center or warehouse so they will be ready for shipping once you order them. Amazon uses predictive analytics to increase its product sales and profit margins while decreasing its delivery time and overall expenses. And other customer research tactics. They're not individualized, but these big data marketing techniques also help Amazon stay ahead of competitors. Supply chain optimization. Hey there, Kenpo. This is Uncle Maduro. Look, if y'all been enjoying these little pie talks here I'll be giving, then won't y'all consider buying old Uncle Maduro a cigar? You can go right there to my little wave page there and donate. Donate to Uncle Maduro just for the price of one cigar. And man, let me tell you, I keep on doing these little talks here that I be giving. So now that I've done harassing y'all like a cigar at the beach, let's get back to the talk. All right now. Because Amazon wants to fulfill your orders quickly, the company links with manufacturers and tracks their inventory. Amazon's big data systems choose the warehouse closest to the vendor and slash or you the customer, to reduce shipping costs by more than 50%.15. Additionally, Graph Theory helps decide the best delivery schedule, route, and product groupings to reduce shipping expenses further. Price Optimization Big data is also used for managing Amazon's prices to attract more customers and increase net income, net profit, by an annual average of 143% between 2016 and 2019.17. Prices are set according to your activity on the website, competitors' pricing, product availability, item preferences, order history, expected profit margin, and other factors. Product prices generally change every 10 minutes as big data is updated and analyzed. As a result, Amazon typically offers discounts on best-selling items and earns larger profits on less popular items. For example, the cost of a novel on the New York Times bestsellers list may be 25% less than the retail price, while a novel not on the list could cost 10% more than the same book sold by a competitor. Amazon Web Services Through Amazon Web Services, AWS, Amazon's cloud computing service introduced in 2006, companies can create scalable big data applications and secure them without using hardware or maintaining infrastructure. Big data applications such as clickstream analytics, data warehousing, recommendation engines, fraud detection, event-driven ETL, and Internet of Things, IoT, Processing are executed through cloud-based computing. 
Other companies may benefit from Amazon Web Services by using them to analyze customer demographics, spending habits, and other pertinent information to more effectively cross-sell company products in ways similar to Amazon. In other words, it's not just Amazon that can stalk you. These retailers can, too. I know I keep saying, lastly but I cold not help but wonder. How does our government is data mining you? As the US intelligence community's already vast powers grow, your civil liberties shrink. I was out of the country only nine days, hardly a blink in time, but time enough, as it happened, for another small, airless room to be added to the American National Security Labyrinth. On March 22nd, Attorney General Eric Holder and Director of National Intelligence James Clapper, Jr. signed off on new guidelines allowing the National Counterterrorism Center, NCTC, a post 9-11 creation, to hold onto information about Americans in no way known to be connected to terrorism about you and me, that is for up to five years. Its previous outer limit was 180 days. This, Clapper claimed, will enable NCTC to accomplish its mission more practically and effectively. Joseph K., that icon of single-lettered anonymity from Franz Kafka's novel The Trial, would undoubtedly have felt right at home in Clapper's Washington. George Orwell would surely have had a few pungent words to say about those anodyne words practically and effectively, not to speak of mission. For most Americans, though, it was just life as we've known it since September 11, 2001, since we scared ourselves to death and accepted that just about anything goes, as long as it supposedly involves protecting us from terrorists. Basic information or misinformation, possibly about you, is to be stored away for five years or until some other attorney general and director of national intelligence think it's even more practical and effective to keep you on file for 10 years, 20 years, or until death do us part and it hardly made a ripple. If Americans were to hoist a flag designed for this moment, it might read tread on me and use that classic illustration of the boa constrictor swallowing an elephant from St. Exupery's The Little Prince. That, at least, would catch something of the absurdity of what the national security complex has decided to swallow of our American world. Oh, and in those nine days abroad, a new word surfaced on my horizon, one just eerie and ugly enough for our new reality, Yadabite. Thank National Security Agency, NSA, expert James Bamford for that. He wrote a piece for Wired magazine on a super-secret, $2 billion, 1 million square foot data center the NSA is building in Bluffdale, Utah. Focused on data mining and code breaking and five times the size of the U.S. Capitol, it is expected to house information beyond compare, including the complete contents of private emails, cell phone calls, and Google searches, as well as all sorts of personal data trails parking receipts, travel itineraries, bookstore purchases, and other digital pocket litter. The NSA, adds Bamford, has established listening posts throughout the nation to collect and sift through billions of email messages and phone calls, whether they originate within the country or overseas. It has created a supercomputer of almost unimaginable speed to look for patterns and unscramble codes. Finally, the agency has begun building a place to store all the trillions of words and thoughts and whispers captured in its electronic net. Which brings us to Yottabyte which is, Bamford assures us, equivalent to septillion bytes, a number so large that no one has yet coined a term for the next higher magnitude. The Utah Center will be capable of storing a Yottabyte or more of information, on your tax dollar. Large as it is, that megaproject in Utah is just one of many sprouting like mushrooms in the sunless forest of the U.S. intelligence world. In cost, for example, it barely tops the $1.7 billion headquarters complex in Virginia that the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, with an estimated annual black budget of at least $5 billion, built for its 16,000 employees. Opened in 2011, it's the third largest federal building in the Washington area. 
and I'll bet you didn't even know that your tax dollars paid for such an agency, no less its gleaming new headquarters. Or what about the 33 post 9-11 building complexes for top-secret intelligence work that were under construction or had already been built when Washington Post reporters Dana Priest and William Arkin wrote their Top Secret America series back in 2010? In these last years, while so many Americans were foreclosed upon or had their homes go underwater and the construction industry went to hell, the intelligence housing bubble just continued to grow. And there's no sign that any of this seems abidingly strange to most Americans. A system that creates its own reality. To leave the country, of course, I had to briefly surrender my shoes, hat, belt, computer you know the routine and even then, stripped to the basics, I had to pass through a scanner of a sort that not so long ago caused protest and upset but now is evidently as American as apple pie. Then I spent those nine days touring some of Spain's architectural wonders, including the Alhambra in Granada, the Mesquita or Great Mosque of Cordoba, and that city's ancient synagogue, the only one to survive the expulsion of the Jews in 1492, as well as Antonio Gaudí's Sagrada Familia, his vast Barcelona Basilica, without once in a country with its own grim history of terror attacks being wanted or patted down or questioned or even passing through a metal detector. Afterwards, I took a flight back to a country whose national security architecture had again expanded subtly in the name of my safety. Now, I don't want to overdo it. In truth, those new guidelines were no big deal. The information on as far as anyone knows innocent Americans that the NCTC wanted to keep for those extra four and a half years was already being held ad infinitum by one or another of our 17 major intelligence agencies and organizations. So the latest announcement seems to represent little more than bureaucratic house cleaning, just a bit of extra scaffolding added to the great mosque or basilica of the new American intelligence labyrinth. It certainly was nothing to write home about, no less trap a fictional character in. Admittedly, since 9-11 the U.S. intelligence community, as it likes to call itself, has expanded to staggering proportions. With those 17 outfits having a combined annual intelligence budget of more than $80 billion, a figure which doesn't even include all intelligence expenditures, you could think of that community as having carried out a statistical coup d'etat. In fact, at a moment when America's enemies a few thousand scattered jihadis, the odd minority insurgency, and a couple of rickety regional powers, Iran, North Korea, and perhaps Venezuela, couldn't be less imposing, its growth has been little short of an institutional miracle. By now, it has a momentum all its own. You might even say that it creates its own reality. Of classic American checks and balances, we, the taxpayers, now write the checks and they, the officials of the national security complex, are free to be as unbalanced as they want in their actions. Whatever you do, though, don't mistake Clapper, Holder, and similar figures for the gaudies of the new intelligence world. Don't think of them as the architects of the structure they are building. What they preside over is visibly a competitive bureaucratic mess of overlapping principalities whose mission might be summed up in one word, more. In a sense though they would undoubtedly never think of themselves this way I suspect they are bureaucratic versions of Kafka's Joseph K., trapped in a labyrinthine structure they are continually, blindly, adding to. And because their mission has no end point, their edifice has neither windows nor exits, and for all anyone knows is being erected on a foundation of quicksand. Keep calling it intelligence if you want, but the monstrosity they are building is neither intelligent nor architecturally elegant. It is nonetheless a system elaborating itself with undeniable energy. Whatever the changing cast of characters, the structure only grows. It no longer seems to matter whether the figure who officially sits atop it is a former part owner of a baseball team and former governor, a former constitutional law professor, or looking to possible futures a former corporate raider. Evidently, it's our fate increasing numbers of us anyway to be transformed into intelligence data, 
just as we are being eternally transformed into commercial data, our identities sliced, diced, and passed around the labyrinth, our bytes stored up to be mined at their convenience. You might wonder, what is this basilica of chaos that calls itself the U.S. intelligence community? Bamford describes whistleblower William Binney, a former senior NSA crypto mathematician largely responsible for automating the agency's worldwide eavesdropping network, as holding his thumb and forefinger close together and saying, we are that far from a turnkey totalitarian state. It's an understandable description for someone who has emerged from the labyrinth, but I doubt it's on target. Ours is unlikely to ever be a Soviet-style system, even if it exhibits a striking urge toward totality, towards, that is, engulfing everything, including every trace you've left anywhere in the world. It's probably not a Soviet-style state in the making, even if traditional legal boundaries and prohibitions against spying upon and surveilling Americans are of remarkably little interest to it. Its urge is to data mine and decode the planet in an eternal search for enemies who are imagined to lurk everywhere, ready to strike at any moment. Anyone might be a terrorist or, wittingly or not, in touch with one, even perfectly innocent-seeming Americans whose data must be held until the moment when the true pattern of eneminess comes into view and everything is revealed. In the new world of the national security complex, no one can be trusted except the officials working within it, who in their eternal bureaucratic vigilance clearly consider themselves above any law. The system that they are constructing, or that, perhaps, is constructing them, has no more to do with democracy or an American republic or the constitution than it does with a Soviet-style state. Think of it as a phenomenon for which we have no name. Like the Yadabite, it's something new under the sun, still awaiting its own strange and ugly moniker. For now, it remains as anonymous as Joseph K. and so, conveniently enough, continues to expand right before our eyes, strangely unseen. If you don't believe me, leave the country for nine days and just see if, in that brief span of time, something else isn't drawn within its orbit. After all, it's inexorable, this rough beast slouching through Washington to be born. Welcome, in the meantime, to our nameless new world. One thing is guaranteed, it has a bite. <laughs> what y'all think about that? Hmm, that's some interesting information there, ain't it? Okay? Like I tell y'all, y'all don't get none for free when y'all be going on them Facebooks and them Instagram, Amazon, them Instagram. You know, I remember myself, I used to, when I first started doing my little sewing stuff, I used to put some of my stuff on uh, eBay. I used to put my stuff on eBay. And then, you know, you, I put my stuff on eBay, and then I, you know, I advertise my, my, you know, my little page on eBay where people come to my page on eBay and look at my product. But then it dawned on me. It dawned on me, you know, it say, I say, well, I'm putting my stuff here on, I'm paying money to send people to my little page on eBay, but then eBay got all these other advertisements with similar products other, other than mine or just like mine in that category of mine with lower prices. So it's like when I send somebody to eBay, they look at my stuff, but then eBay is showing them everybody else's stuff at a lower price point. It's almost like taking your car, your used car, to a consignment car lot and putting your used car on a consignment car lot with a bunch of other cars, right? So when somebody comes in that car lot, they're looking at your car, but then they got all these other cars to choose from. You're going to never sell your car, but you take your car and you put your car on, on a corner somewhere by itself where you don't give people options and choices. Now, I kind of got off a little bit there, but I'm just showing y'all, these people don't give y'all nothing for free. When I can advertise myself on eBay for free, 
I'm driving traffic to eBay, and eBay is advertising everybody else stuff. You see what I'm saying? So I stopped that. I'm not going to spend money to drive traffic to my page, but then they advertising everybody else stuff on there. But see, I can't complain about that because I need to read the terms and conditions. They can do that. So they're not doing anything wrong because they're giving you something for free, but they also marketing off your back. You see? Ain't nothing wrong with that. That's these folks' platform. Now, I said I wasn't going to get off on no big old rant, and I just did. Okay? Because I can get mad at Facebooks and, Inst and Amazons and all that kind of stuff for data mining, collecting information, all I want. But this is their platforms that they built. And if you use it without reading the terms and agreement and agree to it, then you have to abide by it. Not so much abide by it, but <laughs> you just agreed to get suckered because you wanted something free. Now, look, now I'm going to shut up because I said I'm going on no big round. But right now, what we're going to take a look at right now, and I'm not going to come back after this. When this go off, it goes off. But I want y'all to listen to the thing over again at certain points to get some information. Now what we're going to take a look at, we're going to take a look at Facebook a little further here. We're going to take a look at how Donald Trump used Facebook to get elected. Now, before Donald Trump did it, Obama did it. So only thing Trump did was learn from Obama because Obama was one of the first one to use social media, right, to get elected. So Donald Trump looked at that, his, his organization looked at that, and they did it a little better. You see, y'all thought it was about, you know, Donald Trump, he's he's uh, going to drain a swamp. He's different, all this kind of stuff. Donald Trump didn't have a platform. Donald Trump platform was the same platform as Ronald Reagan, make America great again. It wasn't nothing new. It was recycled. He didn't need nothing new because everything was going digital. It was about the data. It was about the analytics. It's not about the big pretty speech and what promises they're going to make that they ain't going to keep. And then the Democrats... Learned what 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 uh the Democrats learned what Trump did, and they did it better. They did it better. They put. I'm not gonna give everything away. Look here, y'all. Listen, this is the last part here, right? Listen, this thing good. And then I want y'all listen to the pod talk. Go back and listen to it again. Get some uh some some points in there. See, this is the real world stuff that's going on here. This ain't no conspiracy theory stuff here. This real stuff, and be honest with y'all, I'm not even mad at them. I think it's brilliant. I think creativity is brilliant. It is. And a lot of folks, they don't know. We don't know. Because you don't want to know because you want to keep going on Facebook, looking at your friends, finding what your friends doing. You want to keep using them GPS things to track people. To track where everybody else because you think it makes your life easier. You want to keep using all these cameras inside your house, watching what's going on inside your house, collecting data. You want to keep using that, talking in your car, driving in your car while your car collecting data. Man, this thing is something else. But look at me. Let me tell you something. If it makes your life easier, and you feel that it's worth giving all this information up, because like I tell y'all, right now you're giving up information. You ain't giving up nothing. Right now, they gather the information, your information, because they're giving you something for free. But later, information turns into control. Okay? But I'm getting off 
into some of the other stuff that I'm going to be talking about on some other little pod talks a little later. But right now, I want y'all to take a listen to this, this last part here. We're going to take a further look at Facebooks. Now, this also includes Brexit. Okay, but I'm not going to give everything away. I'm going to let y'all listen to it for y'allself. All right? Now, look. Now, Uncle, uh, Uncle Maduro, sure appreciate y'all because I'm not coming back at the end of this. I sure appreciate y'all. And like I said, again, I want y'all to listen to this thing uh, over and over again, key little points, and pull out. And like I said, again, this ain't no conspiracy stuff. This is stuff that's actually happened. In other words, you think your vote count when you go to a voting poll, your vote used to count. Your vote don't count no more. We are in the age of data. We are in the age of analytics. We are in the age of big tech. We talk about big pharmaceutical, talk about big business, big industry. No, we're in the age of big tech. Okay? Now, y'all listen to this. And I sure like to thank y'all again. And y'all repeat listen to this thing a few more times and pull some key points out. Now, let's take a look at Facebook a little further and how Donald Trump used data mining in the 2016 U.S. presidential election and Brexit. Consultants working for Donald Trump's presidential campaign exploited the personal Facebook data of millions. Last month, the New York Times and the UK's Guardian and Observer newspapers broke news the social networking giant was duped by researchers, who reportedly gained access to the data of millions of Facebook users and then may have misused it for political ads during the 2016 U.S. presidential election. Facebook said it was investigating the reports, which involved data consultancy Cambridge Analytica. Over the past three-plus weeks, the situation has snowballed. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg was in Washington this week to testify before Congress. Meanwhile, the number of accounts affected has risen to 87 million from initial reports of 50 million. Separately, Facebook said it was purging pages linked to a Russian troll farm that's known for creating fake online identities and posting on both sides of politically divisive issues. Cambridge Analytica reportedly acquired the data in a way that violated the social network's policies. It then reportedly tapped the information to build psychographic profiles of users and their friends, which were used for targeted political ads in the UK's Brexit referendum campaign, as well as by Trump's team during the 2016 US election. Facebook says it told Cambridge Analytica to delete the data, but reports suggest the info wasn't destroyed. Cambridge Analytica says it complies with the social network's rules, only receives data obtained legally and fairly, and did wipe out the data Facebook is worried about. Here's what you need to know. What is Cambridge Analytica? Cambridge Analytica is a UK-based data analytics firm, whose parent company is Strategic Communication Laboratories. Cambridge Analytica helps political campaigns reach potential voters online. The firm combines data from multiple sources, including online information and polling, to build profiles of voters. It then uses computer programs to predict voter behavior, which could be influenced through specialized advertisements aimed at the voters. Cambridge Analytica isn't working with a small amount of user data. The company says it has 5,000 data points on over 230 million American voters or pretty much all of us, considering there are an estimated 250 million people of voting age in the U.S. The company has since faced criticism for what executives, including CEO Alexander Nix, said in a series of undercover videos shot by the UK's Channel 4. In the videos, Nix discussed lies and apparent blackmail he'd perform as part of his efforts to sway elections. We have lots of history of things, Nix said in the videos, I'm just giving you examples of what can be done and what, what has been done. Nix has since been suspended from his job as CEO. His comments do not represent the values or operations of the firm and his suspension reflects the seriousness with which we view this violation, 
the company said in a statement. What did Cambridge Analytica do? Facebook said in a statement on March 16 that Cambridge Analytica received user data from Alexander Kogan, a lecturer at the University of Cambridge. Kogan reportedly created an app called the Sigir Digitalip that ostensibly offered personality predictions to users while calling itself a research tool for psychologists. The app asked users to log in using their Facebook accounts. As part of the login process, it asked for access to users' Facebook profiles, locations, what they liked on the service, and importantly, their friends' data as well. Facebook logo on mousepad. Facebook's data appears to have been improperly used for political purposes during the UK's Brexit vote and the 2016 US presidential election. Getty Images. The problem, Facebook says, is that Kogan then sent this user data to Cambridge Analytica without user permission, something that's against the social network's rules. Although Kogan gained access to this information in a legitimate way and through the proper channels that governed all developers on Facebook at that time, he did not subsequently abide by our rules, Paul Gruel, a vice president and general counsel at Facebook, said in a statement. Kogan didn't respond to requests for comment. The New York Times said he cited non-disclosure agreements and declined to provide details about what happened, saying his personality prediction program was a very standard vanilla Facebook app. A former Cambridge Analytica executive, Brittany Kaiser, said it's possible more people's profiles have been caught up in the scandal than the 87 million Facebook has so far counted. It is almost certain, she said in a hearing before the UK Parliament's Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, DCMS, committee on April 17. What does this have to do with Trump? The Trump campaign hired Cambridge Analytica to run data operations during the 2016 election. Steve Bannon, who eventually became Trump's chief strategist, was also reportedly vice president of Cambridge Analytica's board. The company helped the campaign identify voters to target with ads, and gave advice on how best to focus its approach, such as where to make campaign stops. It also helped with strategic communication, like what to say in speeches. The applications of what we do are endless, Nick said last year in an interview with CNET sister site Tech Republic. The White House didn't respond to a request for comment. Cambridge Analytica also worked with other 2016 presidential election campaigns, according to its website and various media reports. Those included the campaigns of Senator Ted Cruz and candidate Ben Carson, who went on to join Trump's cabinet as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Why did Facebook ban Cambridge Analytica from its service? Facebook said Cambridge Analytica certified three years ago it had deleted the information, as did Kogan. But since then, Facebook said, it's received reports that not all the user data was deleted. The New York Times reported at the outset of this controversy that at least some of it remains. Cambridge Analytica said in a statement that it deleted all the data and is in contact with Facebook about the issue. Meanwhile, Christopher Wiley, the whistleblower who detailed how Cambridge Analytica reportedly misappropriated the Facebook data, said on Twitter that his Facebook account had been suspended. A few days later, he held a press conference to discuss his situation and the larger controversy. I'm actually really confused by Facebook, Wiley said. They make me out to be the suspect or some kind of nefarious person. Was Facebook hacked? The New York Times characterized the original problem as a data breach and said it's one of the largest data leaks in the social network's history. That's in part because the roughly 270,000 users who gave Kogan access to their information allowed him to collect data on their friends as well. In total, more than 87 million Facebook users are said to have been affected. The misuse of this data is what the New York Times zeroed in on. How to delete your Facebook account once and for all. Facebook, however, says that while Kogan mishandled its data, 
all the information Kogan got was accessed legally and within its rules. The problem is that Kogan was supposed to hold onto the information himself, not hand it over to Cambridge Analytica or anyone else. Because the information was accessed through normal means, Facebook disputes the characterization of the incident as a breach. People knowingly provided their information, no systems were infiltrated, and no passwords or sensitive pieces of information were stolen or hacked, the company said. Of course, critics point out that Kogan was able to do what he allegedly did because Facebook allowed app developers to request and receive access to the data of users' friends. Facebook changed that policy in 2015, prohibiting the practice. Wait, so Facebook allows apps to access my data? When you log into an app using your Facebook account, the developer typically asks for access to information the social network has. Sometimes it's just your name and email address. Other times, it's your location and your friend's data too. All this is pretty much what any app developer that works with Facebook was allowed to do until 2015, when Facebook prevented app developers from accessing friends' data. Everything else, though, is still fair game. Facebook says its rules specify that developers can't share the information they receive with other firms. That's where the problem with Kogan and Cambridge Analytica comes up. The company has an app review process it puts developers through. Once they're cleared, things are A-OK. -okay. You hand your information over to app developers all the time. Don't like it? Think before you click. And read the requests from app developers more carefully. Facebook, by the way, is hoping to stop the next Cambridge Analytica. It's offered a bounty to anyone who finds apps that misuse Facebook data. The company has also revamped its tools to help you identify which apps have access to your data, as well as those to strengthen security of your profile. Facebook also made it easier to download data it has on you. Could this lead to more regulation? Zuckerberg himself said it might. I'm actually not sure we shouldn't be regulated, he said in an interview with CNN on March 21st. The question is, what is the right regulation? He answered that question on April 6th, saying he supports the Honest Ads Act, a proposed law that would require tech companies to disclose how political ads are targeted and how much they cost. Lawmakers on both sides of the Atlantic are looking for answers from Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. Regardless of whether that bill becomes a law, there's one thing we know for sure, the honeymoon between the tech industry and government is over. After decades of, mostly, treating tech companies as favored children, legislators and government regulators are increasingly taking a tougher stance against them. Already, this scandal has renewed calls for more regulation. This latest fiasco could reignite the debate within the Beltway and EU around a tighter regulatory environment Facebook and its social platform brethren could face going forward, Daniel Ives, an analyst at GBH Insights, wrote in a note to investors right after the controversy erupted. This represents another critical period for Facebook to handhold and assure its users and regulators around tighter content standards and platform security in light of this latest PR nightmare. Facebook also faces an investigation by the Federal Trade Commission over whether it violated a 2011 consent decree. Companies that have settled previous FTC actions, the U.S. agency said, must comply with FTC order provisions imposing privacy and data security requirements. Accordingly, the FTC takes very seriously recent press reports raising substantial concerns about the privacy practices of Facebook, the agency said in a statement on March 26. Today, the FTC is confirming that it has an open non-public investigation into these practices. The consent decree required that Facebook must get users to agree to and must notify them about the social network sharing their data. Facebook earlier told the Washington Post it rejects any suggestion of violation of the consent decree. In Europe, where regulators have traditionally taken a tough stance on social media and privacy, 
the president of the European Parliament, Antonio Tajani, tweeted that EU lawmakers will investigate fully, calling digital platforms to account. In the UK, Damian Collins, the chair of Parliament's committee overseeing digital matters, said Zuckerberg needs to stand up and answer questions directly. What happened in Zuckerberg's appearance before Congress? A little over three weeks after the Cambridge Analytica news broke, Zuckerberg went to Washington, where over two days he endured ten hours of questioning by congressional committees. Echoing earlier statements, he apologized to lawmakers for Facebook's recent missteps and voiced support for some regulation of the tech industry. In his first day of testimony, he did score some points. Zuckerberg addressed a room full of Senate Judiciary and Commerce Committee members who struggled to understand what Facebook does, how the social platform works, and how to regulate it. He escaped largely unscathed, having settled into his role as both an explainer of technology and a receiver of the occasional finger wag. But on day two, things got a little rougher. His appearance before the House of Representatives Energy and Commerce Committee was defined by pointed questions from lawmakers who appeared to have done their homework. Some, like New Jersey Representative Frank Pallone, hammered Zuckerberg on default privacy settings. California Representative Anna Ishu asked Zuckerberg if his own data was swept up in the Cambridge Analytica scandal. He said that it was. And Florida Representative Kathy Castor and New Mexico Representative Ben Lujan raised concerns about how much Facebook follows people as they browse the web and whether people without accounts on the social media network still get tracked via shadow profiles. Zuckerberg said that he wasn't familiar with that term and that Facebook collects data on non-users for security purposes. Your business is built on trust, and you're losing trust, Lujan said. But apparently Facebook hasn't lost Wall Street's confidence. The company's shares rose approximately 5% over the two days of testimony. Was this similar to what the Obama campaign did on Facebook? Sort of. The Obama campaign did collect a similar level of data from its app, which includes both your information and your friend's information. But as PolitiFact notes, users were willingly giving up that information and knew it was going to a political campaign. The Obama campaign used your friend's data to figure out who may or may not be willing to vote for him, and sent messages to users to persuade their friends. That's different from the Cambridge Analytica situation, since most users taking the digital life quiz had no idea that the data would be used for political purposes. What's Facebook doing about this? After five long days, Zuckerberg broke his silence on March 21st with a nearly 1,000-word post on his Facebook page. Come on, did you really expect it to show up on Twitter? The post was his first since since March 2nd, when he shared a photo of his family celebrating the Jewish holiday of Purim. Zuckerberg acknowledged that Facebook had made mistakes with users' information. We have a responsibility to protect your data, he wrote. And if we can't then we don't deserve to serve you. He's since sat down for several media interviews, and on April 4th, held an hour-long conference call with journalists. Life is learning from mistakes, Zuckerberg said. At the end of the day, this is my responsibility. I started this place, I run it, I'm responsible. The company, he said, is now facing two central questions, can we get our systems under control and second, can we make sure that our systems aren't used to undermine democracy, Zuckerberg said. It's not enough to give people a voice, we have to make sure that people are not using that voice to spread disinformation, he added. And, specifically, he acknowledged that Facebook has to ensure that everyone in our ecosystem protects people's information. We have a responsibility to protect your data. And if we can't then we don't deserve to serve you. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. He's promised to investigate apps that had access to large amounts of information before the company made changes to how much information third-party apps could access in 2018. 
Facebook will conduct a full audit of apps that exhibit suspicious behavior and bar developers who don't agree to audits. On April 6, Facebook said it was banning Aggregate IQ, another political analytics firm that's reportedly tied to Cambridge Analytica's parent company, SCL. Aggregate IQ denies this connection. Facebook said it instituted the ban out of concern that Aggregate IQ may have improperly received Facebook user data as well. Facebook's public missteps have brought up other concerns about Facebook too. One example is a memo leaked to BuzzFeed penned by Andrew Boz Bosworth, a top Facebook executive. The 2016 memo advocates growth above everything else, regardless of whether people use Facebook to bully and harass one another. The ugly truth is that we believe in connecting people so deeply that anything that allows us to connect more people more often is de facto good, he wrote at the time. He's since said he was trying to stir debate, and didn't agree with what he'd written. Facebook is also planning to restrict how much access developers have to your information, limiting the information it gives apps to your name, photo, and email address. It'll also revoke an app's access to your data if you haven't used it for three months. The company is also planning to further restrict political advertising, Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook's coup, said in an interview with Bloomberg. If you were using hate-based language in ads for elections, we're drawing those lines much tighter and applying them uniformly, she said. Last, Facebook will begin displaying a gauge at the top of your news feed that lets you know which apps you've used and let you revoke their permissions. All of that will provide comfort to many users, but for others. Are people bailing from Facebook? They are though it's still too early to know if that'll have a substantial effect on Facebook's gargantuan user numbers. Right off the bat, the hashtag hashtag delete Facebook flared up on Twitter backed by, notably, Brian Acton, WhatsApp's co-founder who sold the messaging service to Facebook for $19 billion. We're also starting to see some action that could hit Facebook in the wallet. Within days of the scandal erupting, Firefox maker Mozilla said it would no longer advertise on Facebook because of data privacy concerns, and it launched a petition to ask the social network to improve its privacy settings. Meanwhile, Tesla and SpaceX CEO Elon Musk has taken a different kind of stand prompted by an inquiry from a Twitter user, he quickly deleted both companies' Facebook pages. So did Playboy, for what it's worth. Beyond those high-profile moves, a recent survey from the anonymous employee social network Blind found that 31% of tech workers plan to delete Facebook too. Coverage of Facebook has turned negative too, a survey by BuzzFeed found. Still, Zuckerberg said in a call on April 4 that the larger hashtag delete Facebook campaign hasn't had a noticeable effect on its active user counts. Ultimately, reform is what's needed, said former Cambridge Analytica executive Brittany Kaiser. For many years, I never questioned it, Kaiser said. That's the way that the political system works. That's the way that advertising works. That's the way that every single industry that exists in the entire basis of digital communications works. I do really understand the industry, and I have the ability to be a voice for change. What can I do? There isn't much. You may be even swept up in this without even knowing it. You don't have to have downloaded Kogan's app to have had your information accessed, since the statements and articles say the app slurped up information about users' friends. Cambridge Analytica also doesn't appear to offer a way for you to request your information be removed from its systems. The company didn't respond to a request for comment. As for Facebook, you can always try to lodge a complaint with Zuckerberg. You should also check your privacy settings on Facebook and consider these ways to stop sharing data with Facebook. And if you're really unhappy, you could get involved in a class action lawsuit. You could also join the hashtag delete Facebook campaign. Man, what y'all think about that? Mm -mm -mm. Look here. I sure like to thank y'all for stopping by this little talk here. 
man, I sure enjoyed it. So much I want to say. If I say anything further, I'm going to get ahead of myself of what I want to say later on. Now, look, when y'all get a chance, y'all goes out and y'all look for the, this Illusion Ultra. This is a show good stick here. Show good stick. All right. Go to your local cigar spot. If you can't find your local cigar spot, then what y'all do is y'all go online to see our host or anywhere y'all get y'all little cigars at to fill up the humidor. But always shop local first. And like I always tell y'all in life, y'all take care of everybody out there. But more importantly, y'all take care of y'all first.